Today's episode is brought to you by the Create Engage Marketing Accelerator, our brand new program to help startup consulting founders like you scale your business through digital marketing. This is something that I am really passionate about and so excited that we are able to launch. I regularly get messages from listeners like you and others in my network asking for marketing advice. Everything from what were the steps that I took to launch Create Engage through to what's the best platform for running a webinar through to how do you create great content for LinkedIn and everything in between. At Create Engage, this is exactly what we help our clients do and more. But for many startup consulting firms, our retained support is simply not a cost-effective option. I've been in your shoes and I know how it feels. You want to use digital marketing, you know it works, and you see the results it delivers for others. But you don't know where to start. At this stage in your journey, you have more time than you do money. But you want to make sure that you are investing that time in the right way to deliver return on investment for your business. We are launching our marketing accelerator to do exactly that to give you the strategic advice, the guidance, the support you need at a price that makes it a no-brainer for smaller consulting firms like yours. By joining our accelerator, you will join a network of like-minded consulting entrepreneurs, all focused on growing their businesses. Each cohort will be handpicked to ensure that there is no competitive tensions in the group, giving you the comfort to discuss your challenges openly and learn from your peers. Each month, you will meet with one of our expert team and your fellow Accelerator members for our Accelerator Roundtable, where we will walk through your specific marketing challenges and develop the plan to help you successfully deliver your marketing goals. We'll do this in small, focused groups, letting you get our advice, but also learn from your fellow members and benefiting from hearing the advice we're giving to them to apply to your own business. This isn't the end of the Accelerator, though. Each month, we'll hold a private webinar just for Accelerator members, where we will walk you through everything you need to know and through your top questions, the things that you have asked us to show you. This could be from how to run a great webinar through to how to launch your own industry-leading podcast. We'll also give you our tried and tested systems and templates, everything you need to make your marketing successful. There's a lot in there, but if that wasn't enough, We'll also be bringing every member together into our private LinkedIn community, giving you a place to share your ideas, ask for advice, and learn from each other to help make your marketing better. As this is the first Accelerator program we're running, we're launching January 2021, we are offering all of this for just £750 per month plus VAT with an initial commitment of six months, less than £5,000 to give you everything you need to set your consulting firm up for success. Just imagine, if that helps you secure one project, think about the return on investment and what that could mean for your business. Places are limited, and we have already seen a ton of early interest in this first Accelerator cohort. So, if you want to find out more and apply to be part of our Create Engage Marketing Accelerator, then visit createengage.com co.uk forward slash grow to read everything you need to know about the accelerator fill out the application and we look forward to welcoming you to our first cohort to help you accelerate your business through digital marketing hi and welcome to climbing consulting in today's episode i speak with jeff cronkshaw 
founder and group managing director of Lancia Consult, the rapidly growing multinational consulting firm with offices in Singapore, Hong Kong, Germany, and here in the UK. I got to know Jeff through one of my previous guests, a former boss, mentor, and role model of his who he'd heard on this podcast. Jeff and I had a few conversations, he shared his story, and hearing the journey he's been on with Lancia Consult, I knew that he would make a great guest for this show. There are so many things in Jeff's story that are unique and firsts for climbing consulting. He's had a truly global career and has spent half of his working life in Asia, where he and his wife founded Lancia Consult. Not content with simply starting a consulting business based in Singapore, Jeff and his wife set out to launch a global business and have deliberately focused on growing their geographical footprint, overgrowing within one specific region, something that no other guest that I have interviewed to date has done. In today's episode, we dig into the Lancia story and talk about what it's like to grow a global business from day one and all of the challenges and complexities that come with it. We cover so much ground in this conversation, including why Jeff and his wife decided to move to Singapore in the first place and his advice for anyone thinking of making a similar move, the Lancia Consult journey, how Jeff and the team have successfully grown the business across multiple regions so quickly, and the lessons he's learned from the last eight years of building the firm. And Jeff's top questions for anyone thinking of going out on their own, what you need to ask yourself and what you should be talking about with your life partner especially if you're thinking of going into business together. This was a great conversation and one that I really enjoyed. Jeff was kind enough to make the trip to our office in Bath for a real, live, in-person, socially distant interview. It made for a great conversation, a great dinner afterwards, and so much great advice for you to learn from. If you're currently thinking about New Year's resolutions and have moving abroad or starting your own consulting business on your bucket list, then I know that you are going to get a ton from this conversation. So with the intro done, everything said, all that's left to say is please enjoy today's conversation with Jeff Cronkshaw. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Nick. And thank you for coming all the way to our office in Bath. We'll, we'll come on to how far you've come, but thank you very much. This is the, the first in-person, two metres apart interview that I've done since COVID started. So thank you for being that guest. No, it's great. <laughs> first time in, what, five months, six months? It's about that, yeah. It's, um, if, in fact, actually, I did my last interview in London was, who was it? It was Hannah Farah from Carnell Farah, mm-hmm. um, and we did it... Yeah, just before lockdown started, uh, and yeah, it's uh, it's crazy to think how far the world has changed and how 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 much has changed since then. Well, it's good to yeah, you get back traveling as well. So I've, I've been back on the plane now for well, I don't know a month. So it's yeah, it's nice just to get out and meet people, getting clients and some kind of normality. So yeah, it's lovely. It's great to be here. Well, we'll come on to your travel schedule and ev- everything you do now with Lancia Consult, but. Firstly, and I know you've listened to a number of these, so you probably know the question that's coming. For those who maybe haven't come across yourself, haven't come across Lancia Consult, it'd be great if you could start with just your background and, and how you got to where you are today. No problem. So I guess just we'll start from the beginning. So I, I was born in London. My parents were both teachers. And I guess the first like, uh, eight, nine, ten years brought up in London and southeast of England. And then we moved to Scotland. And... Secondary school was all in Scotland. Then 
I went to university down on the South Coast in Brighton pretty quickly and uh, started uni actually quite young at 17, which uh, I'm sure we'll come back to that. But um, then studied in the in uh, Brighton, did a placement year with uh, a US pharmaceutical called Eli Lilly, famous for Prozac, amongst many other very well good selling drugs. And um, they offered me a, a graduate job basically at the end of my placement year. So it made my final year quite straightforward and I had a job lined up and I went back to work for them straight away, which I was very happy with. I had a great time there. And I spent, I think, five, six years with them, worked in kind of typical graduate kind of life. You know, you moved around different departments. I worked in research actually for the first few years, then sales and marketing in IT and then left them for Accenture, which I had had an eye on consulting all the time. And if it wasn't for... I think the job offer, you know, coming out of uni, which made life very straightforward, I probably would have ended up in consulting anyway, I think. And then went to Accenture, complete shift of gears and life um, from basically spending time in the US and Europe and living in Paris and, and Belgium for short periods and lots of travel with Lily to joining UK Gov in Accenture. It was completely different and straight onto the NHS project in London and the east of UK spent uh, three, four years with Accenture in London, UK Gov. And then with my well, wife, we uh, asked to transfer to Singapore. So we moved to Singapore with Accenture and then actually went back to Lily uh, for a year, mainly in Shanghai and US, and uh, then went back to Accenture. So we'll come back to that. I know it's, it's, I've got his career of working for two companies twice, which is quite strange. And then... Um, Another three, four years, I think three, four years of Accenture in Singapore, a different group now into products and supply chain area with Accenture. And, and again, a great time. And then uh, then decided to, to leave Accenture and start Auntie Consult, which was about, a, we're in our ninth year now. So I about eight years ago. And uh, then all that time in Singapore. And then we'd recently moved to Hamburg in Germany. And that brings us kind of where we are now. So it's a complex bouncing around uh, journey. And, and I've been out of the UK now for about 13 years. So it's, uh, and even when I was in the UK, I wasn't really in it that much. So it's been, a I don't know how I got here to be honest, but it's a, it's a journey that's been, it's been great fun. And um, I, I think, yeah, I'm very, very lucky to be where I am. I'm very, you know, quite privileged to, position to be in and I don't take it for granted any day. So it's, it's, a, it's been a great, great run. So that's me. Yeah, that's uh, the last 20 years. Wow. Well, there is a lot in there for us to talk about, Jeff. And I know we have a hard stop of a dinner booking at the end of this. So <laughs> we'll try and pack as much as we can in. And maybe the starting point to what you were saying about the the having worked for two companies yeah. twice, I feel might be an interesting place to start in that sort of early career. Because I know a lot of people who leave consulting around manager grade. You know, it's quite a well-trodden path. You get four or five years in, you jump out to industry. I'd say the vast majority of those people leave and never want to return. Mm. I'm really interested, almost, I know we're going back a little, but if you could talk a bit about that period in terms of what made you leave Accenture at the time, and then also what made you go back, because that feels like, for many people, quite an unorthodox or an unusual move to do. Both situations, when I, I, when I left Lily to join Accenture, and when I left Accenture to join Lily, and, and I was very happy. I was, I was, not, I was not leaving because I was up, you know, I was had enough of them or anything like that. And um, when I joined Lily the second time, it was more because I was. They approached me. They knew I was in Singapore. 
an old colleague saw it on LinkedIn or something and they, they contacted me and said, Oh, you're in Asia. Would you, you know, would you be interested in coming back? Cause I, see, so it's a bit, you're being flirted with, you're being kind of headhunted. And, uh, I had, I had a great time there. I, I had a lot of good memories and I, I owe a lot to Lily and I, I'm really very fond of, of as a company and it, it's part of what, who I am. But so I went back, but the reasons I left were still the same. And then you realize in that first, I honestly, I'd like to say the first day, but it's not true. Probably a few weeks in, you start realizing, I think, you know, this is not what I want to do. And I was very happy at Accenture. And I, and I, I knew that I, that consulting career, I really enjoyed it. I was doing really well. So I'd say within a, within a few months, I made a decision that I was going to go back. And what was it in those few months, few weeks, what had you expected that then when you went in wasn't and made you realize, actually, I've yeah, I made the wrong step. I need to move back. It goes back to the reason I left Lily in the first place were the same reasons. They thought nothing had changed. So I left Lily the first time because I, I was getting a bit, I guess, bored. And I'd, I'd done large projects with them in pharmaceuticals. I'd had a great time, but I wanted to do more. I wanted to do different sectors. I wanted to try different projects. I wanted to do bigger projects. I wanted to do try other things. And that's why consulting pulled me in. And I guess when I went back to Lily, you walk back into the door and you think, actually, I'm in the same place I was three years ago, whatever it was, four or five years ago. And um, I very quickly missed the consulting environment. I didn't want to have a fixed desk. I didn't want to have a promotion kind of dictated by time and those sort of things, which corporates, they, they provide that environment. And I mean, honestly, within a few months, it was, I, I really wanted to get back to consulting. I really missed that drive and the, the pressure and the shifting around of priorities and clients and sectors and and uh yeah and i knew i would not get that at lily and not it's not lily as such it's that corporate environment so it i had a, again i had a great time there and i think i'm still like i say very fond of them but that corporate environment wasn't for me and i could see i was difficult i was not one out and i and i was not fitting in and i was challenging things i shouldn't be challenging and it, and that's a typical kind of consultant and and, and I knew it wouldn't work out. I knew then I, it, I would leave at some point in maybe in a year or two or whatever. And uh, that was why. And I missed Accenture. I missed consulting. I I, I wanted to get back to it. And uh, that, that was primary reason, yeah. So, Having seen both sides of the fence, I think we're, we're very similar in that respect, <laughs> Jeff. And there's something interesting in that from you know, what you said in your, you know, in your story about actually the, the moving of geographies. Mm. And so, you know, the same firm in two geographies still had the same things that I guess you didn't like. I'm interested, and we'll come on to more about the regional differences, because as you said, you've you've lived all over the world. Lancia Consult has offices all over the world. But actually, that move from Accenture UK, where you worked with one of our former podcast guests, as I'm sure he won't mind us saying, but also you then moved over to the Singapore office. How much of a culture shift, if at all, was that? And were there any things you found you really had to adapt to that you know, the huge, culture out there. Huge. I mean, it, it, I remember back then I, I would say some things were exactly the same and other things were completely different. It, it's almost like two different companies. So there's certain things that are the same. So the brand, the, the capabilities, the, the the training, the the promotion processes, those sort of things were the same. That's it. Everything else was, uh, it's almost like starting all over again. And then also there's things when you transferred, you, you actually resigned and rejoined. Really? So you, you had to, because of employment law, so you, you, you go through this process where 
you get your P45 in. You actually hand your laptop in the London office. So I remember the day they gave me a P45 and I was unemployed for a week. And I flew to Singapore and I, I signed a contract and I got my, and they, they, obviously they transfer your time and things, but so mentally it feels different. And then immediately the culture shock. Yeah. And uh, Singapore is, yes, the language carries you through because it's English speaking, but that's about it. And then you very, very quickly fall into a culture shock. I think it takes expats at least two or three years to come through that dip. And you, that's why you see a lot of expats leave after two years or one and a half years. They don't, you've got to really be committed to it or localize and really get into that. And, and we, we did. And Isabella and I, we, where we chose to live was fortunate. It was more of a, not such an expat area. And, and also we were on local projects with clients in Singapore as opposed to big international ones. So there's things that helped, but no, there was big culture shock, the way of work, the socializing. I was brought up in Accenture London where it's about scale and delivery and complexity and, and Accenture Singapore has the same things, but it's different scale. It's a different type of clients. It's different. And all those things affect how the culture of the team works there. So yeah, there were, I would say it took a, a good, uh, at least a year to settle down. And now that's probably what led to the Lily thing as well. So I found that first, that first year quite tough moving out there. I was enjoying it, but I found it difficult. I found yeah, you're so used to London socializing and that kind of thing. And Singapore is very different from that. What are some of those things that for anyone thinking of doing it, they should think about? So you mentioned three, you know, three year dip. If, yeah. if anyone's thinking of moving to Singapore, what are the things that dig into some of those a little bit? Well, I think any move, not just Singapore, but you, you've got to, and we have people that have moved with our, with Lancet Consult as well, but you think you have to be very clear why you're doing it. So when we moved to Singapore, we had no exit plan. So we knew we were localizing and moving out there, moving our life out there. You have to be very clear. So are you going out there for two years to try it out? Or are you going there to literally move your life and, and try it and live overseas and, and no route back? So I think that's number one. You'd be very honest to yourself if you're doing it to experiment or you're doing it because you're committed to, you really want to move your life. And and I've seen people struggle where they, they they're not honest themselves about that and they, they've moved oh yeah we're going to go to asia and we're going to live and um, where it might be and yeah we actually what they're trying to do is replicate their life at home and their network and they, they're trying to recreate their their london life or wherever they're from and i think you have to stop that and localize and uh, those that have done that i've got friends who've been in singapore 10 20 years and and other countries and the ones that do that i've, I've been very committed to that from day one and i think that's the first tip is if you're going out to move overseas, be honest to yourself. And if you if you don't know, that's okay. Just be clear. Don't don't have expectations because you just it's an unknown. And I've had the same. Actually, I found going to Germany much much more difficult than uh, Singapore. And and I was actually overconfident with the move to Germany. And you underestimate the impact of language and those sort of things. So mm. it's um, yeah. I just be honest to yourself and really ask yourself why you're doing it. And be true, if you're especially going with a partner or a, a spouse, then you both need to be on the same page and also be ready that it is difficult and you are going to find things frustrating, confusing, annoying. They're going to find you frustrating, annoying, confusing as well. So you've, you've got, it's a lot about compromise and adapt and be flexible. It teaches you that. And uh, if you spend your entire life, say in London, and then you just go to say Shanghai you're going to find that quite tough. You, it, it is, it is a different, it's like going to Mars and you need to be ready for that. So 
but it's it's for the adventurous you know you should give it a go and if people i, I encourage people is that you, you it's a fantastic experience in your life but it's not for everyone do you find your upbringing helped with that you mentioned you you went from sort of england to scotland back down to brighton and you, know, you were straight off i mean for those people you've seen do it or you know, people who ask you did you find that helped that almost that nomadic upbringing or if not, what were some of those things that you found different compared to some of your colleagues who maybe have lived in London their whole life and jumped ship to you know, Singapore or Shanghai? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think in hindsight, yes. I went to five different schools and wow. I remember, I remember the last school I went to, I, I basically had enough. I remember, and, I, and my, my dad actually, we, a, a while ago, I didn't know this. They said to me, oh, yeah, we're thinking of homeschooling you at one point because you were just losing the plot. There was just too many changes. Yeah. But then one of my best friends I met at that last school, and we're very, very close friends. He's in the States now. And so I think going through those changes and, and being dragged through them and moving from England to Scotland, but I didn't understand a word they were saying for about a month. And and then moving back down to Brighton. And I don't really, I'm very change happy. Mm. So Germany, I, you know, I don't have a fixed plan. You know, So it's, are we going to be there for 20 years? Don't know. We have five years. We might we might move back to Asia. We might stay there. I mean, it has made me much more relaxed about that and adaptable. And that history just carried on. And I think it started probably when we moved to Scotland. It was a huge change. You know, all my friends cut off, new friends again, 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 again. And I think you do. It does give must give you something, yeah. And I, and I think therefore, the shift to Singapore, the shift to Germany, the time in Shanghai, I, I didn't didn't really bother me no so i don't think it was planned that way it's just i think it makes you much more ready for it maybe but that's hindsight that's all hindsight so i promise you didn't there was no plan at 18 like right let's go down to brighton and let's make sure in 20 years i'm doing all these things but it doesn't work that way it's just how it all ended up so and i think we may come back to that topic of sort of the nomadic lifestyle there's something around you know your choice to go all in in Singapore that low you know we went to localize I'd love to come back to but I I'm conscious that this is a, a consulting podcast yeah. not a travel one and so <laughs> some of these sadly for our listeners they they might not get to hear but we might speak about afterwards and I I want to bring it back to almost the, the decision point just before you and your wife started Lancia Consult because I didn't quite appreciate that your wife was also at Extensure so yeah. so just to place her, you were director level when you started. Was she also director? Was she? No, she was a manager when she left. So okay. she was a level below me, yeah. Um, but very similar though, yeah. Yeah, so you've got two consulting salaries coming into the house. Yeah, yeah You've got yourself, you're on that cusp of partner and I don't know where you, know, where you were in the journey, but it's the next logical step. And I always think this is a fascinating point to find out what led you to start the business. And almost with... The reason for this question is very much for people who were like you at that stage. I always think it's a, a really interesting place. And I kind of, I've seen people who have gone on and succeeded in you know, making partner or succeeded in launching their own firm like yourself. I've also seen people who, if I'm honest, get stuck at the, you know, the carrot is there dangling and it is for the next 10, 20 years. And I, I'd love to find out more about that decision point. You know, how did the idea come about? And Actually, how did you and your wife decide? You know what we're gonna we're gonna jack in two very good consulting salaries, consult you know the security of consulting, and we're gonna launch this. And 
Yeah, again, to bust probably a myth that some people think you're doing this in what I understand is a very expensive place to live. You know, Singapore's not, it's not like somewhere you can't get a cheap place like in some of the places in Northern England or Scotland, like you said, it's very expensive. So tell me about how that came about and how you ultimately decided, yes, we're going to make this leap. So yeah, it's a a series of decisions. It's not, it wasn't like a one morning, let's go do this. So I'll tell the story as kind of how it unfolded. So we were both um, in Accenture. Actually, Isabella longer than me. She joined straight out of uni. So she was a lifer there and um, and uh, both, yeah, really enjoying it. I was a bit more senior. Um, so I was a senior manager in my last like third year or something. So I'd already started the process of, they'd already started giving you share options and you're in that zone that you say where you're head, I want to become a senior executive, they call it now. And um I want to move to that. Now, all those choreography was starting and um, I was very happy. I, 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 I was really enjoying it generally. It was, I, I come back from Lily. I was in a, in a very happy place. We just had our daughter and Isabella been off on maternity, come back. And it was very quick. She didn't want to stay in consulting. It was, it was this is not working anymore. And it's, you hear that story a lot. I mean, the minute you know, kids or family situation changes, consulting is not great. You know, it, it can, it really can be quite grating on families. And within a few months, she's like, no, I, I, I don't think I want this anymore. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't conducive to our daughter. It wasn't working really well for her. And she said, no, I'm going to, and she took an LOA actually. She time up from Accenture and then she did that's it. I'm not going back. So she, she quit. And then we, I was still at Accenture then. And we said, well, what are we going to do now? And so we, we formed, Lancet Consulting LLP, a partnership at that point, mainly to create a vehicle that she could go contracting. That was it. It was, And we said, well, we'll start this off. And if you do maybe later in a few months or in a year, we can at least do some, you can, you can we can trade as a freelancer. So not, first six months, nothing. Isabella was enjoying time out of Accenture. We were, we, and you're right, on one income, we were, we were, we were perfectly okay. You know, we were not, not extravagant, but we could survive and live no problem. And um, then a client approached me, a friend of mine actually now, uh, who was an Accenture client and knew about um, Isabella being free. I said, oh, look, would she like to come back and do some contracting with us and uh, help us, you know, X, Y, Z? So she did. And um, the rates were good. I was like, this is quite, this is quite good. And um, and then I, I got slowly got sucked into this, you know, week by week. And um, we sat down one evening and, it was, and said, look, why don't I jump as well? I don't know where it came from. It's like, would, we could do this. We could create something. We could start something here. And and Isabella said to me, I remember she said, uh, look, we could create a really good life. You know, not necessarily, it wasn't money driven. It was more lifestyle. It was more we could create a situation where we can we can stay in Singapore or we could choose what we do next. Who knows? It was more like a, another adventure. And um, I remember I stayed up all night. We didn't sleep. And I resigned that morning at five in the morning. And it was, it, I knew it was, this was it. This is, there's no way back because you can't quit Accenture twice and come back a third time. So I, it was a really difficult decision. And, and like I said, I was very happy. But the decision to do it was more about we've got a chance to do this. And we, our daughter was actually six months, nine months. They're pretty low maintenance. They're pretty low cost at that point. They get a lot more expensive. They get like nine years old, trust me. But it's like, what is, this is it. This is the, this is the chance. This is the only chance to do this. And I realized I'd always wanted, actually, then you start talking about it. It's like, I actually really want to do this. 
and um, that was it. And then we, we we jumped off to the cliff kind of thing. And and you know Isabella had a, a good day rate. I then looked at it more from a builder company kind of perspective and consult. And, and those those first two three years flew by. And I, I'm, I'm sure we we'll come back to that. But it was mainly the chance to do it, and we realised this is it. This is it. And I, and I knew that Accenture was going, to, was going to wrap its arms around me more and more. And it was an expensive decision then at 30, what was I, 34? I was walking around share options and salary. It was only going to get harder. And you, you, you could see that there and then. I, and, I, and then we talked about it, said so that this much, uh, and the share price now is quite eye-watering. But uh, yeah, you're walking around these share options. But uh, that was it. That was honest, it was it. That was it. It was just a, this is this is our... If we're going to do this, it's now. So just so I'm clear, like you say, Isabella went off, went yep. to contract. Did you go in to contract and then it evolved or did you go in no. knowing you wanted to build? At that, at that point, it was to build. And uh, again, we sat down and said, you know, if we're going to do this, why, why walk away on a perfectly good consulting career with a very good consulting company where you're doing really well and you're, you're really established in Asia? And why would you do that, Right. So it had to be to build something. And I think that, that that ethic is in the company now and it's 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 very deep. So it's very very much long-term planning. So it was from day one, it was if we're going to do this, it's going to be multi-office. It's going to be a challenger brand. It's going to be more than just a few of us earning good day rates. Because why on earth would you and I think it's very difficult for people at that level in in not just Accenture, but any any large consulting firm. You are, yeah, like you say, you're well paid. You've you've got to a point where you're managing work rather than delivering work. You're you're managing teams and clients. It's a big, big call, and you've got to be very, very sure why you're doing it. And I think it's that that was very clear. It's like, why on earth would we do this? So, it was to build multi office and start recruiting straight away. Else, why bother? So, I want to come back to the where it's got to, you know, multi office and and how you've grown because I think there's some fascinating elements in there. I just to hold on this a little bit, and again, I find myself asking around this question very much for friends, you know, people in my network, and I'm, I'm sure you know, colleagues have come to you as well. I, how did you get over, if it was, that doubt of, like you said, you're 34, you've got tons of share options, you you know either because you can see the pay scales or because you know someone there what you'd get in one, two, three, four years' time. And I, I guess the, the interesting thing as well is how did you have the confidence to do it? And the reason... I ask that is I've had some guests who, you know, were selling sweets in school have always been entrepreneurial. You know, I a guest who will be coming out shortly, he sold t-shirts at his local his school printing press, you know. But I was very much like yourself, you know, I I didn't do that. I had a corporate career before I launched my own business. So I I asked this for people like you and I who haven't got there. How did you get comfortable with all of those elements to say, you know what, yeah, this is going to be a better long-term bet for me and my family than Accenture senior executive? Actually, I did do those things you talked about, and I didn't. Okay. Really, I didn't really realise that. And and, and you in, when you look back on it, you and you look back at. I've always been quite, I think, quite difficult to manage. And I and I, I look, and you actually un, you actually unravel the twenty years, and you, you look at the the, the the whole sequence of it. It starts to make sense. So, yeah, I, I did build. I remember uh, my mum told me the other day that in the garden shed, I built a shop. At like seven, eight years old. I don't I remember doing it. And he said, yeah, you had like a little, little bar and you had a little shop and you, you were selling stuff. And then um, at school in Scotland, I did a printing business, business in speech marks. I was typing basically. I could type very fast because I was coding. And um, 
my mum had a good computer and then I was doing typing for people. So like people doing PhDs or masters or whatever, they'd give you handwritten dissertations and I'd type it up and charge them. And then I did a disco business, business again, speech marks, more like just cash in hand. But, you know, we have a good friend of mine from school. We did, did that for two summers. Amazing. Um, and then I want, I knew I wanted to do a placement year. So I went to university, I targeted a degree where I had to be working and I guess that I didn't, I, it all made sense. And when that discussion started about, oh, let's start a company. It's like, of course, I, I really want to do this. But I also knew when I left uni, I wanted to work for a big corporate because my mum had moved with Shell and I saw the difference in our life it had. And when she went from, she was an English lecturer and she, and she joined Shell in Aberdeen and I was going into these big offices in, in Aberdeen. I was seeing the corporate life and and the difference it made to our family, the income and the structure. And, you know, we, we started going on foreign holidays and it's a difference. Suddenly we had two cars and suddenly everything got you know, bigger. I knew I wanted that. I knew I wanted that structure when I left uni. But then I kept moving around and I got frustrated. So I think it was just at the time it came, it just suddenly made sense. And, I, and the confidence, maybe all the moving around I've done kind of makes you a little bit less, I don't know, not precious, but I didn't really think about it. And it's just, I wanted to do that and doing it with Isabella was, was, was just natural. So you make it sound so simple, Jeff. And I, 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 I really don't, I, it really was that, it, I mean, I did stay up all night. The resigning from Accenture was the hardest decision, Yeah, not the doing it. It was that I, I remember I didn't, I all night, I, I knew this was a huge decision. And then I think, I also knew that I was I was going into this not for fun, not for a year or so to go contracting. This is this is a major undertaking that's going to be measured in maybe decades, but years. And uh, yeah, it, was, it was a really difficult email to send. So I, we are going to come on to. I want to ask a similar question, but in a different way, in case it mm-hmm. it sparks some thoughts for others. But I just your sort of entrepreneurial youth reminds me of the <laughs> the missed opportunity I had, which was the disco business. And I remember <laughs> I remember at seven, I think at sixteen or seventeen, I, I I wanted to do it, and frankly, I just didn't have the bottle. And I, I, I don't know how we got into it, but <laughs> well, and, and I, you know, for anyone, I doubt we have many listeners at sixteen or seventeen. But anyone with kids, I just think it must be the best business. You know, I, I mean, loved I, it. I loved it. 200, whatever you get, I don't know what the going rate is for a wedding, but you know, two, 300 quid for a, a party, you get to play some music. I just. We were paid 50 quid. It was Mark and I, he's a very good friend of mine. He's my friend in the, one of my friends in the yeah. States. And um, we were a bit geeky and we had, we had computers. We tried to, it was just fun. And yeah, we got paid 50 quid and um, you know, we were just driving. The first year we weren't driving, obviously mums were dropping you off and. <laughs> We did birthday parties. We did like 12 year olds and we did like weddings. We did Masonic halls, all sorts. And it was just cash in hand. It was fantastic. And it was just, yeah. I, yeah and interestingly, Mark, the friend I did the disco business with, was, it wasn't really a business. It was just playing music for money. It was good. But um, he has done the same. He's had, he's never worked for corporate. He's had his own businesses. He has his own business now. Very entrepreneurial guy. And uh, maybe that's it. You don't know at that point. You're just having fun. But yeah, that was a big deal. Yeah. No, I, I... I'd recommend it to any 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 parent of a 16-year-old. <laughs> get them into disco business. It's oh, good. <laughs> I, I, I think... And again, we'll take some tangents, but I, I actually think it's the perfect business at that age in that it's fun. And because it doesn't pay 
and this is a personal judgment, but because it doesn't pay so much that actually it's easy to live off as an adult, you can swoop under the radar and you earn, I don't know, 10 quid, 20 quid more than you would at a cafe, but you have fun doing it. it, Exactly. So, So, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, so... If I, if I could go back in time, Jeff, that would be, I'd, I'd sit myself down and say, Nick, go and, little Nick, go and do the disco business. So yeah, for anyone who's maybe, maybe that'll be something, maybe there's a, a social enterprise or something to help kids do this. Cause I think there's a lot in there, but. You learn, you learn so much. You learn people skill. Again, at the time you don't even notice it, but you're, you're, you are dealing with customers. You are setting a price. You are having to deliver a service. You don't still, do you still have a, a pair of decks or <laughs> no, you don't get the Lancey Christmas party. You don't, no, don't don't no, the headphones. No, and... no, no, but <laughs> I've, I've toyed with it. I've you had, might be asked now. Well, you know, you see those, um, it's some great setups now with, you know, iPads and yeah, it's all, it's all great. You see, and you think, I would have spent a fortune. <laughs> so, but no, yeah, no. no. <laughs> well, there we go. For anyone with kids. Get them into the disco business for any of Jeff's colleagues. Um, we know what the uh, the Christmas yeah, parties will be like. They're going to be laughing their heads off at this. <laughs> this one. But to, so to to bring us back to to what you were saying, and and yes, you know, I, I made some assumptions that are incorrect about your story, and I think maybe to ask it a different way because I'm sure this has happened, and if it hasn't, stop me and we'll move on. Is for the colleagues who have come to you since, you know, as mm-hmm. as Lancey Consult's grown, I'm sure you regularly get you know the ex Accenture colleague or Accenture colleague asking you the question I just did, how do I decide if it's right for me? What should I think about? And I guess not just what should I think about at the start, but what am I letting myself in for? Mm. I'd love to get that advice for for our listeners. What is it, if someone listening to this wanted to ask you that question, what are those two, three, four, five, whatever it is, things that you say, actually think about this at the start, middle and throughout to make sure you're making the right choice? Well, first is, is why? No, be, again, be very honest to yourself. Why are you doing this? Is it for money? Because if it's for money, then you should not do it. Not 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 for the first few years. It's it, and what is your motivation for doing it? Why are you leaving whatever consultancy you work for? You know, be very very honest to yourself. But what's driving that? Not and if you can't answer that question, I'd, I'd say don't go near it because you need to be very very clear on that and. So for example, if it's, I'm very entrepreneurial and I, I feel constrained and I don't really fancy the the partner life, which I didn't actually looking at, looking back. And I remember some discussions with my career counselor and I, I didn't like the way it was panning out. And um, then, okay, tick. So, okay, that's good. Uh, do you want to make money out of this? Yes, I'd like to make money pretty quickly. I have a lifestyle to maintain. Hmm. That's probably not going to work out either. So you've got to, you've got to be ready for those things. So motivation to do it. What's your financial goals? Um, if it's no, no, if it's no, actually, just need to live and break even and and maintain a, a, a straightforward life, and and I want to, I can do that. Then okay, tick. Now it's okay. What kind of company are you trying to build? So it gets more complicated, and it's okay to say I don't know, but you've got to have those first two questions answered. And then I think you can get into okay, what are you trying to build? You just want to build a consulting company, okay? be prepared for a very long journey because you're not going to be build. There are so many consulting companies. So you've got to go from one person to two people, to three people, to five, to seven, to 10, to 15 and and so on. And that's measured in years. So I've had those conversations with, I've had people talk to me in the last few years and, and I say to them, are you ready for the next 10 years? And most will say, no, 
actually, no, I, I'm, I'm actually expect I want to do, I need to have a financial reward quicker than that. Well, then you're probably better just to create a partnership of two or three of you and earn very good day rates and, and leave it like that. Because if you want to go beyond that, then it's a whole new game. And I think that's, it's just the most straightforward conversation I'd have with them. It's be very, very true to yourself. Some fantastic advice in there. And it brings us on to actually the, the growth journey, but following that thread, and you mentioned you've got to go from two to three to you know, five to 10. For you, what have been those big inflection points? What was it going from two to three? Was it five to 10? You know, what, what for you has been that seismic shift that you felt you've really had to adjust to? They come thick and fast. So so when I, when I left Accenture, I said to Isabella, we're going to hire someone straight away. So we have, we have enough income with a day rate to hire someone. So it's like, okay. So that immediately your income's just dropped dramatically because you're paying someone else. So I guess the first inflection point is that first hire because you're already mentally giving away, not giving away, but you're basically reinvesting your net profit from day one. So that's the first, that first mental shift about you're not taking money out of the business. That's critical, I think. Then the one for us was when we got beyond sort of three, four people and they needed to know who the boss was. Because <laughs> like, when you say two or three of you or four of you, it's like, okay, Alex works with Jeff and Saskia works with Isabella. And then CS works with Jeff and Saskia works with Isabella. And then there's like five of you. It's like, well, how does that work? And then suddenly a hierarchy kicks in. So I think about five, six, six, seven, who's in charge? Like that question raised itself. And then I'd say the second office immediately starts creating different dynamics and then 20, 30 people. And then we're we're hitting another one now at sort of 40-ish, 50. I think it's for our story, it's a little bit different because we weren't weren't in one office. So if we were in just one office, I think it would have probably been, you know, 40, 50 people in one office. But because we had different offices very quickly, that created a need for structure and governance and and hierarchy. and, And how do you build two companies now? Because it is basically... Each new office is a new company. So the new office, 20, 30 people, pretty the big ones. And now as we've diversified the business, there's been some major ones more recently, last couple of years. So we've got into more kind of traditional business consulting. It's not just technology. And, and then you're, you've got to manage different capabilities being built. Then we've got uh, you know, more software services we're developing. And, and that just puts pressure on the company. So they, they, they come thick and fast. But yeah, the early ones were office 20, 30 people. So just before we go on to the offices, because I think there's something really interesting in your story, and I know we've we've spoken before around that, that decision to go, I guess, wide, not deep. But I, I want to come back to that because you mentioned around deciding who's in charge. And that sounded relatively simple. So if this is, is a short conversation, stop me. But you mentioned it was a business you and your wife ran. And so presumably... At some point, you had to decide who ran the business, which I think is hard enough with any business partner, but I can only imagine is more so when it's your life partner as well. So I'd love to find out as much as you're willing to share about actually, obviously, what was the sort of trigger to say we had to have it? And then how did how did that period work through to where we are now with, with yourself as group managing director? I get asked that. We, we get asked that question a lot. How the hell do you two... Uh, how come you're not divorced? How are you still together? <laughs> we get asked it all the time. And um, it, first of all, it, it is very, very tough. And I think it, if there are, I think it's the same with two partners. You know, I think it's not just because your marriage is add another complication because I guess the first thing is when you're building a company, it's all encompassing. 
And at least if your partner, your wife, husband, your partner is not in that business, then you've got a, a kind of a release valve. You know, you, you can talk to your partner, you can de-stress. But when all you talk about is the business for eight years, it's it's very, very demanding. And we underestimated that. And we've come through that, I think, pretty well. And it, it's not without very, very difficult moments. And it's it's very stressful building a business and doing that when you've got... No, and also, there's no other income. There's no other exit valve there's no there's, there's no no alternative it's it, it swamps you so that is true but we've kind of grown through that adapted quite well the the shift to someone has to be in charge it was it was as simple as that it, we got to a point where I, we sat down and said is a, some one of us needs to be clear new joiners are coming in they don't know who's running the business it's just two of it it's a bit strange husband and wife you know we need to be a bit clear about this and she didn't really want to be that person at the front of the company, you know, representing the company, forward facing. She didn't didn't want to do that. So that was that was quite quick. It was, I'll do it, and we had a debate about it for I don't know six months. We have to announce this, and it was just you know, it's like literally seven people. It's easy, right? But we did that, and then that made us start to think about the structure of the company again. And well, what are you doing now? And so Isabella went from running uh, two of us to four or five to to co-running to more being a senior kind of delivery like senior manager type role managing a couple of clients to gradually now where she's a non-exec on the board and she stopped doing client work over a year ago at least a year and a half and she's you know very happy with that and her role now it's also helped me because when we have our board meetings she can play the role of the shareholder i can play the role i play the i am doing the role of the Group MD, so I don't have to think like that in the board. I can I can focus on what I'm doing, and nor does she. So it's 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 grown and worked really well, and gradually she's becoming more and more the non-exec shareholder, the not the owner, but she's one of the owners. But she she um, plays that role and she she quite enjoys it. So it's it's worked out really well. But it, it, it's not a smooth sale at all. It's full of uh, interesting moments. I can guarantee that. So <laughs> you mentioned in there the the home component so the the business side sounds or the way you've described it that was sort of a logical conversation and it made sense how did you approach home life and particularly for anyone who's either in the same boat or is considering it did you create some sort of boundaries to give you a a home life versus a work life and were there any tips or tricks that you thought back then that were just it's almost impossible so i think if any couple looking to do this get ready because you, you cannot there we try so hard we try to not talk about work this weekend it is impossible because when your whole livelihood and you're, you're you're totally invested in it and your income and everything is on the line it it's all encompassing i mean we we talk about work every day even today but it obviously gets less and less and i'd say make the roles clear and then it will help but we tried those things. We tried all kinds of things like don't talk about work on the weekends, impossible because you it, it, you can't avoid it. And also, and I think we'll come back to partners who aren't married, you know, partners who are doing it, business partners. I think it's the same challenge. But, um, you know, you want to de-stress. You want to talk to your partner, your wife, your husband. You you want to get their kind of comfort and support. And, that's, and you, it's very difficult. That, that person's also your co-owner right so it, you have to kind of switch hats so i'll talk to his as we had this joke for years like, i want to talk to you as my wife not my fellow shareholder 
But you don't know that when you start the conversation, she doesn't know what, what mood you're in. So no, 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 I just want to rant about something. And so, okay. And she's approaching it more as the owner. So you have all these complications. You've tried all these type ideas. It doesn't work. So the, the advice would be just be very, again, honest yourself, be ready. It will all encompass you. Make sure your roles are clear. One of you has to be in charge. And I think the same, so I spoke to a startup consultancy in Denmark a few, a couple of years or two ago, ex McKinsey guys. And there's two of them. And the first thing I said to them was, who's in charge? Oh, no, no one. We're a partnership. We're just two of us. We had another partner. Oh, just, okay. At some point, you are going to decide who's in charge. Who, who does the interview? Who does the press release? Who stands in front of the team and gives the update? And you can see the friction already. It's like, mm, go away and decide now. And then they came back a few months later and said, no, we've decided X is going to be the CEO. Good. Now you can go forward again. But you, you cannot avoid that. And you do hear about these companies that have some sort of Nirvana kind of commune partner kind of i always feel the role are the witches you know they all come together and they and magic happens and they lead the company it doesn't it doesn't work that way the arguments in those partnerships are phenomenal and it's behind closed doors but you cannot get 20 people in the room and just get agreement and there is always natural hierarchy where there's one's been there longer or one was the founder you know there's always hierarchy so i think yeah if you're starting a business or consultancy and there's three or four of you which i, I know uh, there's quite a lot like that just be very clear who's in charge and be clear. If not, then accept that you're going to be leading by consensus and it's going to be slow and slightly paralyzing and, and, and accept that. Don't, don't, don't try to get the best of both worlds. So some really good advice. And I, I want to come on to it. I just, a last question and this might just be, it, it didn't happen because like you say, <laughs> your business life was all encompassing is I can understand that. And I do. So I, I'm not in business with my wife. She is a hugely supportive partner. and But I know what those partners have to go through hearing me rant and rave at my wife about or, or everything to do with work. But actually, the, <laughs> this is a really specific one, but I'm just genuinely curious is how did you stop work or personal disagreements filtering into the other one? Or did you? So if you fell out about a client, do you take that home? Likewise, if you fell out about dinner, does that fall into the next it day? It overlaps all the time. And it's been very difficult. And it puts a lot of pressure on you. And you again, you, you, you hear about business partners breaking out and falling falling apart as well. You add marriage on top of that. It's, 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 I'd say it's, been, it's been some very, very difficult moments where, yes, you'd, you'd have a disagreement about money or something or about a client or whatever. It could, you know, it could be anything. And because you're married, that can then escalate very quickly. Obviously, whereas business partners, they usually walk out the room and the next day it's, you know, you rediscuss it again, but you can't escape. You know, you can't just go, oh, okay, uh, shall we go for dinner now? This, no, it doesn't work at all like that. So yes, it, it can linger and it's, it's painful. What really helped was our board. Because it, it gave Isabella a, a home where she could be that role and it allowed some separation. And it took two or three years to evolve that, but it, it, that's worked phenomenally well. It gave her non-execs to talk to. It allowed me to separate discussions so we wouldn't, we wouldn't need to discuss so, so intensely all the time. And now I can literally rant about things and she, had, and she doesn't need another context. And it's, as we got bigger, it gets, it gets easier. So, but yeah, she would, yeah, you could ask her, she would, um, she's quite a forthright woman. So she would, uh, she knows what she puts me in my place very quickly, but I don't know the, the answer to it. I don't know if there's any trick. I think it's just hard work and we, 
genuinely wanted to do it together. So it's, it's, it's worked out is the best way of putting it. It could have easily gone different direction. Well, some really useful advice for, for anyone thinking about it. Um, I regularly suggest it to my wife and I think quite rightly she, she suggests that maybe we shouldn't. And I think for us, that's the best decision. But <laughs> to bring us back to you, you talking about some of your advice for, I guess, what I'd call more traditional partnerships, so non-life partner-based partnerships. That's probably, I know I'm in marketing, there's a better name for it. But I'd love to get some more of your advice to some of the things you were saying there. So you talked, for instance, about you always need a leader. You know, actually, as soon as you get above two for whatever your partner group is, you need a natural leader. And you were talking about hierarchies and, and structures. And I think it's very sexy right now to talk about flat structures and everyone's got a voice. And I'd, I'd love to get your take you know, as you've built Lancia Consult really on how you've approached that that governance process, that that operating model, if you like. And what for you has been the key things that have, have helped you that others have either said, oh, you don't want to do that, or you, know, you didn't think about doing for so long. And then when you did it, it clicked and everything fell into place. Yeah. So I think one is we had to, because we went multi-office. So immediately you've got to struck you've got your operating model emerging. So an element of it was that, but I think people, I know there's two schools of thought, but I think people need to know who they work for and they know who's directing them and guiding them. And yes, you can have dotted lines and you know, but in the end of the day, who is my boss? I think that's quite an important, I think it's very important. It's always worked very well for me. I think it's important that the business is structured. It, a hierarchy, I think it allows you to delegate. So the minute you create a role, you're saying to someone, you're responsible for that. That's what you do. That's your job title. And these people report to you. And it's clear. It's how I've always seen it work very well. And I, and I'm a, I, I think it, you don't, have to, I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not, I believe in huge nested hierarchies. I think that's paralyzing as well. But people need to know who's in charge of them, who's directing them, who's coaching them. And also those people in those roles need to know what their role is and, and, and a clear job description of which we're not great at, to be fair, but yeah, but clear objectives about what they're there to do. So by saying you are the MD of that business or you are the principal in charge of that capability, they clearly know that's what the job is. And yeah, I, I, I just, I've always seen it work very well. And, and at the end of the day, someone has to make a decision. So it goes up the hierarchy. So it, it can start with a, you know, a consultant looking after interns. You have to make a decision about what work they do. And they need to escalate something to their manager and they escalate to the director. And, they, and at the end of the day, it might come to me. But by delegating, you're, you're, you're letting them make their own decisions as well. So I, I, I think it, it, it enables decision-making, it enables delegation, it enables clear responsibilities, it enables uh, direction. And if you take it away and go flat, then who's, you know, who's in charge of what and who's leading who? And I, I, and I, I think, again, if you're... Again, because we're multi-office, we, it, it had to happen quite quickly. But if we were in one office and one structure, maybe it'd be a bit, be a bit flatter. But we'd still have that capability head who looks after those people. And we'd have that, the office MD or, or the regional MD, we'd still have some of that. So yeah, I, I like to have clear roles and people, you know people who, they, who, they, who, they, who they're reporting to. And who. And I, think, I, guess, I guess that's with our board, I needed someone to report to. And I, I think you do need that. So it's either shareholders or it's, Maybe it's your co-founders or whatever the situation is, but the board gives me a platform that I, and not just me, but the other directors, it really puts in place that cadence and that reporting structure. So you actually, when the board comes, the week or two before we are in 
not I would say panic, but we're we're rapidly putting together our board materials and we're rethinking how we do it and we're kind of evolving that. But it forces you to stop, look at the business and play it back to them in a way they understand. It's so you're basically reporting to them. And it's it's helped us massively. Helped me especially. You need someone to, you need someone to report to. So I want to come back to the the board point um, as much selfishly for me as it is for my listeners, but I want to keep going or, or just to clarify on the, the governance size. You know, I, I understand what you're saying around putting hierarchies in place and putting you know, clear responsibilities. And actually for anyone listening who's on that journey, how did you approach that to give clear responsibility that both lets them know what they're responsible for and have ownership, mm-hmm. but doesn't also at the other end, make them feel like they're too micromanaged because they've got, you know, 200 objectives. How, how did you strike that balance? Is there a framework? Is there a document you've used? What are the tools that have helped you do that? As I say, first of all, I don't think we're great at it. I, mean, I think we, we're evolving it as well. So we need to get better at uh, job descriptions, those sort of things. But consulting, it has a natural hierarchy anyway. So you, 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 pyramids and that structure, it, it naturally forms. What we've tried to do is we've kept it fairly simple. So we, we've really organized ourselves around how the business is trading. So we have trading companies and they need to have company directors legally. Right? They're, they're, they're private limited companies. They're trading businesses with financial accounts. So that's the first structure. I mean, that's how we've grown so far. So our business is structured by trading businesses with MDs running those businesses. Simple. They report to a board. So immediately there's a that's probably our most rigid structure below the the directors who run those businesses it's fairly flat so then we have typical consulting pyramids so principals you know managing consultants senior consultant you know it's the same thing at the moment they're all kind of grouped and they report the only hard line is they report to one md but of course there's coaches and principals that look after people will we evolve that into more hard OG type structures or operating group kind of fixed structures, maybe. Will we stick to the trading company structure? Maybe. We adapt as we go along. But that's the rigid piece at the top. And tools-wise, no, we really live inside our operating model. So we have an exec meeting with the directors. We have, they have their, so our UK MD has a UK management meeting with his senior consultants or principals. So does the Asian one. So it's, it's kind of duplicating either side. That's, that's, and now we've kept it fairly simple. But the structure's there so that the team in the UK know who the MD is they know, and the team in Singapore know who the Singapore MD is. But within the team, they work very you know, collegiately. They work as one management team, but there is one person who is the company director who signs the contracts, who is the legally able to sign a document. So there's simple things that, that you have to put in place. So that's, that's how we've done it. And yeah, like I say, we kept it light and we could do things better we, we should do more on job descriptions and those sort of things. And again, as you get bigger, 30, 40 people, 50 people, then you kind of have to. And when you bring roles in like head of people and not client-facing roles, then it gets really important because they, they're not in consulting. You know, they, they need a, a description objectives. So we, we're getting better at that, yeah. You gave a nice summary there of, of actually the breadth of Lancet Consult and the, the different offices you've got. And I, I'd love to turn to that part of the early story, but throughout the business. And the reason I'm keen to pick up on this is a lot of my experience or all of my experience is the UK consulting market. And while we've had, I think actually our first guest from the Asian market, so congratulations on that, Jeff. But um, (laughs) I have seen, and it's sort of well-documented that there are two approaches. And most firms take the, we'll get deep in our own geography. We'll get to, I don't know, 50, 100, 200, 300, and then we'll go to put a regional outpost. 
and I'm interested for now why you chose the opposite because it feels just from my limited experience counterintuitive of you're trying to build a you know, you've got a thin spread over a big area so why did you choose that approach and how has it helped you where others may have you know not considered it so the first reason it goes back to the the question about why leave Accenture to start this in the first place or why why leave a perfectly you know, good career paid job doing well to do this so it was because we we want to build a multi-office company. So you might as well get on with it as quick as possible. So that's that's one overriding reason. But the logic for it is not just because we want that. The logic was and is that it gives you strength. And also we, we wanted it. We wanted to be a multi-office business. And it does slow a lot of things down. So if, we, if we'd just stayed in Singapore, what kind of company would we be? Would we be bigger? Would we be 60, 70 people, 80 people? Would we be more revenue? Maybe. It's, you never, you'll never know. Each new office is like starting again. So it does slow you down. It is hard. All the capital you're generating in net profit, you're reinvesting constantly. You're, you're a break-even business, which you're constantly reinvesting. So the, the reason is to give us that diversity, to give us that strength. And then you look for, you go forward now a few years as those other offices or trading companies kick in and they're starting to generate profit or they're getting to higher revenues. They help the group. So we're a group-owned business, and those trading businesses now can support each other. So naturally, markets have ups and downs, sectors have ups and downs. But you're not going to get that in, unless you have a global pandemic. You're not going to have that in every geography at the same time or every sector. So we've 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 benefited from that over the years. So we, we've had situations where the Singapore business is is much more profitable or or, or better. The UK business have needed the cash support investment, so the other businesses can support each other. So. That's one massive reason. You can give strength to, to roles and teams. So we've had projects delivered in Asia with UK team members supporting, vice versa, a little bit with Asia. Normally it's the UK because it's, it's, it's a smaller company, but it's catching up very fast. So you get role diversity, you can support. So Singapore team might be sold out or UK team might be sold out and you need resourcing. So rather than go subcon associates, you can use your other offices. So those, those strengths just get stronger and stronger as they grow. And our German office, for example, we started off trying to do it the same way and we re, re-approached it and we've learned a lot of lessons there. And we've now got a very, we're very excited about what's happening in Hamburg and it's going to provide a different service to the company, a different strength and skill, a different network, a different capability with clients. And it just adds and adds more ammo. So each time, whereas if you're doing it in one office, in one place, you don't have that diversity. You're, and I, I think, and, and I think it, it plays out, it's very hard if you've done that for 10 years, 15 years, and you've got one office in London, say, for example, or wherever, to then go, right, now let's go to New York or let's go to Shanghai. It's a very, very tough decision then because you've, you've got a business, it's stable, it's serving London market maybe. You know, you, you've done it. You've created a, a UK culture or a French culture or Singapore culture. To then go overseas, I think it's very, very tough. But if you do it very early on, you're already international from day one. So that's why that's why we did it. We wanted that culture. We wanted to be multi-office. We wanted to have that strength. And it's starting to pay, but it does take a long time. So it's not, it's, it's we're now in our ninth year. So we're only just starting to see those strengths coming through. It's been patches of it, but now it's really coming through. So it, I think it's, that's the reason. So you alluded to it in there that you had a process for launching an office or, or you know, starting in a new region. And to your point, 
about it being a, you know, in effect, just a new startup consultancy. It's, you know, it has the support of a brand behind it. Actually, what are those key steps that you've taken to make each of the offices a success? Because that seems to be the challenge. I know people who have done this, that that feels like the hardest point is it's the first one, two or three people. How have you done that? They're all different. And I think that's the, the big uh, lesson learned is, so if I look at the group, Singapore's the oldest, like it, it started in Singapore, it's the largest team, has the most diverse range of clients, the most type of services. It has the broadest pyramid, you know, it has from intern up to director. Everything in the Singapore team is is older, more mature in some respects. And there's, uh, you know, it's where everything started. UK was second. It started off with literally one person. It's rapidly within two, three years got to almost a parity you know it's 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 got there pretty quick but the less we we, we approached the uk and said oh we're just going to do another singapore and that's wrong and we thought well what should we do? Or we'll just create offices in you know bristol edinburgh whatever it didn't work that way you, you have to look again localize and think uk market so we probably didn't we just went at it and i think the lesson we learned pretty quick was no create a hub we chose bristol focus on bristol build a team in Bristol, build a UK team out of that, and then push into other parts of the UK, which we've only just been doing it for a couple of years. But the UK business is, is now a UK business. Again, we went to Germany. This is uh, only what, that's only just two years old. The first attempt was, oh, we need to go find an MD. We need to build another consulting period. It doesn't work that way. We don't know anyone there. We don't know an MD Germany. We can just put someone there. So, we stalled actually for a year or so. We weren't really sure how to do it, got a bit frustrated. And then with the board's guidance as well and us trying different things, we found the right home. And the German business now is reorientated about being around, focused on logistics. It's looking at um, startup and technologies. We've got a, a great network in that space in Hamburg. Um, so it's, it's a different kind of business. So you've got to approach them as completely different businesses, localize and take the time to tailor them don't just try to cookie cut the same experience. It doesn't work. Hong Kong, we opened a trading business in Hong Kong. It's all set up. We had client opportunities developing. We were much more savvy about that one. We said, okay, we're going to wait for a client, develop around a client. We knew what worked, what didn't work. And also Hong Kong's different. It's, it's a split economy between kind of international and local. And uh, then obviously the, the, the troubles in Hong Kong and COVID, which just completely paused that one. So you've got to treat each one independently you've got to, you have to tailor them you have to spend time thinking about what kind of business will it be it's not going to be exactly the same as the one that you started in and that's that's what's really rewarding you start to see these businesses organically become unique they're still the group they're still Lancet console they're still the branding all those things are still there but they localize and i think that's the the big lesson learned for us is you have to let that process run we're not just expanding creating sales offices we're, we're creating teams Clients are different. The environments are different. The markets are different, and play to your strengths. So, yeah, that's that's how we've done it. And um, I would I would advise anyone if they're, if they're thinking about going into that, then you, you do your market research, think about the type of company you're trying to build. Don't just try to replicate the model; it won't work. Uh, who's going to lead it? Get back to my point about hierarchy. Who's in charge of it? Who's running? Who's signing the documents? Who's the director? All these things you've you got to think through. So that point, I was I was going to ask on, but as you've just touched on it. I feel you'll have a, a really interesting perspective on it. The reason I say you made the point that starting in a new region is like starting a new business. And I'd love to understand 
whether it's someone listening who's wanting to start a similar business to you or someone in a, a big business taking this you know, this first step for their firm out into a you know, different area, how have you recruited those MDs? What are the skill sets that you found makes that fantastic first outpost MD? And what is it that is actually different from what makes you know a good big firm MD? I think we've built our own together. So very lucky in the team we've hired. I mean, when, you, when you first start, you're, you're hiring you know, your network. Everyone does the same thing. So you're, you're hiring people you know. You're bringing people into your story. And we did that as well. And our director of our Singapore business has grown into that role. When he joined the company, it was five people. He didn't join as a director. He joined as a, he was in his low 30s, mid-level consultant. And as the business grew, he grew with it. And he, he's become a, a, a very, very capable director. Likewise, our UK business, it was two, three people. Our UK director, again, has grown into that role. The business has grown with him. So we built our own. And that's why I think when we looked at Germany, we looked at external hiring, it, it just wasn't going to work. Because we knew at that point, we, we have a certain culture around that. And to bring someone external in that level, we did look at it. And, and I, 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 we're just very nervous of that. So we've, we've actually, I'd say we've built our own. And what's really nice about it, I, I'm, I'm very proud of the company in that, our, not just our directors, but the principals as well, They've grown with the business. They are also part of that entrepreneurial journey. It's not kind of, oh, okay, let's go and hire three directors and then run a business and make some money. No, no, we, we, it's much more of a long-term investment. So build the company with the people you have. Yes, bring people in, hire them <coughs> in. But now now where we're at, we're, we're, we're focusing on junior recruitment, your graduate recruitment and, and school leaver recruitment type space. And yes, we are hiring in people with experience, but um, not at that level, no. And I think that's what has made it work. It's not without problems, but it's because you've got, you've got people who haven't had the experience of running companies like that before, but they're learning, they're developing those skills, they're, the business is growing with them. And then you've got phenomenal, they're very proud of what they're building. They own it, they're, they've got equity. They want it to grow and drive. And you know, I, I didn't run a multi-office consulting company before coming to Lancet Consult. We, we did it together. So we've built our own. And it doesn't mean we won't hire in directors. We, we, we have brought in senior people um, recently in marketing, with a new capability we've built. There will always be exceptions, but they'll be very rare, I think. So, yeah. For those people who, who have made that step to being successful regional MD, and, and maybe let me phrase this a slightly different way if it, makes it an easier question to answer. If, if anyone listening to this, almost regardless of firm size, is thinking, I need to send one of my team, mm-hmm. you know, they hear your advice and say, actually, look, we want to grow in Singapore, Germany, wherever it is, I need to send one of my team to do it. What are the skills that, what are those skills that, that mean they will select someone over another person? What are the things that they should look out for to decide whether you know, person A is going to make a better fit for that than person B? Well, I think, First is ignore the overseas part, maybe first of all. If you're looking to create a director, you want a director type role to join you as running the company, it's aptitude. It's, they, they need to have that entrepreneurial spirit, sacrifice. They're going to be exposed to the harshness of the business at the rawest level, You know, be it cash flow, be it salaries, be it all those things that they will be sacrificing the most first, right? So you're looking for that, that belief, that aptitude. So do they have that? Do are they ready for the role? And and do they have those? I guess that robustness to deal with that. 
because you're not becoming a director in a you know in a in an Accenture or KPMG or something. You're becoming a director in a in a, in a, in a business with no investment, organic cash flow, and are they ready for that? Mentally, have they got the skills? Do they want to do it? So that's number one. I think the overseas piece is actually quite rare. I think you'd be surprised how many people don't want to do that. It's it's a huge decision to go overseas, and we so our UK business is UK led. We are looking at our Hong Kong business about moving people to run that. But you'd be surprised how many people's hands, yes, I'm prepared to sell everything and move overseas and go to another culture to do that. It's it's actually very rare. And we're lucky that we've got a bit of that in our company and we've got that spirit. And we ask, you know, we look at the leadership team, we discuss it and we say that, you know, we do look for that that spirit and that, that volunteering. That's half the battle. Uh, I've heard, you know, I've got colleagues in other consultancies that have gone overseas and they've expanded, like you talked about, you know, 20 years in London and they've opened another office in, say, New York or Sydney. Generally, what I've heard is it's always because one of the partners or directors has put their hand up and said, I want to go overseas. And then they've done it. Not the other way around. It's not, we want to open an office in New York. It's actually so-and-so wants to go to New York. And I know two of those examples, two of them you've, you've interviewed, and that's, and that's exactly what happened. It's people-led. So sometimes it's not it's not that scientific. It's just this person wants to do it. Let's go do it. And that's honestly half the battle. You've got to have that belief that person who wants to do it wants to be a director, wants to get exposed to the you know the, the administration of a company, which is not glamorous, you know, and 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 dealing with accountants and lawyers and, and annual reports and all this kind of stuff. So do you want to do that? Yes, I do. Do you want to go overseas? Yes, I do. Tick, tick. Right. That's that. Now, are you, can you do it? I think so. So that's, 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 it's as simple as that. I, you have to have the person with the right belief and, and desire to do it. Skills. Yeah. Yes. You know, hardworking, intelligent, numerate. Uh, we've all got that. So I think it's at that point, it's, it's more the person. Yeah. And so I want to come back to the point you mentioned around the board and, Genuinely, in the running my own business, this is as much selfish as it is anything else. But you highlighted so when we were speaking in, in preparation for this, you, know, you mentioned you've listened to a number of, of these, and you, know, you, you referenced Don Morehouse, so guest number two for the podcast way back, and, and he talked about his board. You equally, you know, you said for yourself that's been the biggest thing in terms of what's helped Lancia Consult be successful. Your board, and for anyone, direct this at me, direct at you, sort of when you started the business. Why was it so powerful? And what are the steps you'd recommend early stage businesses do to create these boards? And I, I asked that last one genuinely as a, when you are running a larger business, it's very easy to pay directors. When you're running a smaller business, you haven't quite tripped over that point on the graph where the cost of them outweighs the benefit, or maybe you have and you just can't afford it. But I, I'm going to stop and I'd love to get your take on that question. So it's multifaceted, right? So the first is I wanted someone to report to. And honestly, I, th- I thought it's healthy. You know, you, I don't believe anyone should be unaccountable, right? So you, you need to have accountability to someone. And any you know, companies, they they have shareholders, they have um, investors. So there's always someone you're accountable to in any company. It's very rare there's, you know, I'm, I'm accountable to no one. You know, you, so that first of all, we needed that. And I wanted the advice. I genuinely wanted the advice. I wanted, I, I was 30... 34, 35, yes, I, I, I had lots of you know, experience. I'd lived in different countries and, and I'd worked for Accenture twice and I'd, I'd, I'd done these things, but I hadn't done this before. And I, yes, I, I need, I'd done, 
I'd, I'd done big project deliveries. I'd had big teams. You know, I ticked a few boxes, but you don't know everything at all, and you need that advice. So we brought the board in very early, year five, maybe. So it's in its third year now. Yeah, so year five, and we, yes, you bring in people that you're not going to pay them. So they need to do it because they like you and they know you and they're interested in your project. So our, our board was friends and colleagues and we're very fortunate we had a good network and we had, we had a, a great, I call it board version one. And the main, the main thing they did in that first year was just help us build that accountability. I compare the first board to the board number eight or nine, completely different. The first one was, we were just telling them about the business. We we're just downloading on them and they're going, okay, good, good. Okay. Which one do next? And they, it, it was a sounding board. Second and third, it evolved into better financial reporting. So it, it forced us to display our financials better, to explain it better, to have a strategy. By having the board, it, it, it made me uh, take a step back to go, what, what is our strategy? And this was actually explaining it to someone. The board helped me particularly just get your acting gear a bit better to get some structure. Yes, hygiene and reporting to give you feedback. That was the primary reason for it. And it, that worked really well. And actually, it, it, it adds value over time. So we're now with our board, we have meet, they know the business intimately. They know they've been through the, the they know the crises we've been through, the highs and the lows. They know the situations that we've, we've dealt with. They, they've got that history. Yes, we've changed board members a little bit, but um the, the payback gets better and better and better. And yes, they have benefits like they, they have a network. They, they can help you a little bit with their network. They can, they can, uh, we've, we've, they can, in the early days, actually helped with some of the, our board chair. We put, we made one of them a chair actually. Uh, she actually helped with some client proposals and added some gravitas to that. So that helps you. And it, it I think it just, yeah, it's just, it's, just hygiene and, and structure and cleanliness. And we're now, mu- we're a much better company because of it. And we had that foundation. Now, if we started the board now in year nine, we'd have to go through all of that process again for, for two years. We did that in year five. We are very, very clean and structured now because of that. But it is a, it gets a cost. It's an investment. It's more use of net profit. You know, you are traveling, you're meeting. It's an investment. You have to look at it like that. And, and it's, it's paid back, uh, very well you've got to constantly nurture it and, and tweak it and not be afraid to change it. It, it, it as the company changes the board's role changes how so what, um, what are those changes that well like, for example let's like say the first couple was more just a sounding board you know tell me how i'm doing type of thing now it's actually capital decisions we're making some really you know, big decisions about and opening up new markets or new entities or new joint ventures and yeah, it's, just, it's getting much more serious. And, and having that responsibility in that room, um, we make all of our board members company directors. That's a, a rule that I have from day one. So if you're going to be in the room, you, you're, going, you're going to be at the same level of commitment as I am. So everyone in the room is a director. And is that just, if this isn't important, stop me, is that both from a sort of a company's house, you know, call it UK language, and an equity perspective, or is it just a directorship? And there's it's a- both. So... We had a we started off with a rule that you you will all be company directors, so you all have the shared accountability that I have. Then there's obviously shares. We did give them uh, a small amount of equity, so that gives them a little bit of ownership, and they feel I think it's important. They feel invested, albeit very small. Every little bit helps, and that's compensation for them. And we we're now looking at do we do we bring in compensation salary for them, but that, that's probably still a couple of years away. 
and their, their, their responsibilities change. So because they become company directors, they need to sign off on things. They need to, uh, if we're doing equity type issuing to staff or employees, then they have to approve that. So the, the role does evolve. I think it's important. So the company's growing, the structure's evolving, the board needs to grow with that. And also board members change. You know, we've, we had one board member who did uh, two cycles with us, then had a conflict and had to uh, leave. That's perfectly okay. And sorry, cycles, uh, you, you signed them for a year. year. Okay. No, well, we loosely, yes. But we a cycle for us would be one financial year. Okay. So three board meetings and ad hoc. Then we start again. So it's like it, it, it also creates that kind of cadence in the business. And we started to theme those boards over time. So at first they were all the same, same agenda. Then it's like, actually, no, what the first one should be company valuation discussions and strategy review. The second one should be how are we doing on our budget planning and financial targets and, and promotion type director discussions. The third one is review of the year, lessons learned. It, 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 that, that theming has come out slowly. And I think that will continue. And we're now one of the COVID um, consequences, positive, is that we realize we don't need to physically meet three, four times a year. It's expensive. Uh, it's a big investment. We still will do that, hopefully, once or twice. But we can actually do six board meetings a year, which is better for them. They get more information. The context is clearer. One of the one of the things they'd always say to us is, it's amazing how fast a company's changed from that board to the next board. And it's almost a different business each time. We've, we've changed very, very fast and they can't keep up. So we, we and now we say, okay, well, maybe next year we'll do six or seven virtuals. We've also started doing ad hoc, uh, like this, this particular topic we want to talk about. And then we'll, we'll have that meeting. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, that those, those cycles and cadence and the evolution, it's, it's, it, it really helps us. Even yesterday with our UK director, we we're chatting about it in the, in the pub. We we're saying, what, what, what will we move the board towards next year? What, and he's given me feedback saying, if you're going to, if we, we, need, we need to evolve, you need to take a, di- more, a, a different angle. How are we using them next year? So it forces you to think about that. And I think it's, I can't imagine not having it. I mean, if you didn't have that, I know everyone's got a different opinion on it, but you're just talking to yourself. It's like, well, okay, I'll just do it this way then. And, uh, I, I, I guess I guess in a true partnership business, you, you, you don't need it because you've got a group of partners, maybe 10 of you or whatever. That is your board. And that, that shared collective and consensus is, is your governance because you can't, one person can't make a decision. It's a vote. So maybe you don't need a board then. But in a, in a, I think in a hierarchical business and a, a, a limited company business, there are certain things that require it. So it's more suited to us. And maybe not suited to other companies, of our partnerships maybe, but um, I'm a massive advocate of it, yes. So if you were doing it again, I've got two questions on this, but (laughs) but holding on your point around the versions, which version would you start at if you had your time again and why? Hmm, That's a good question. I'd like to start at version three straight away, but you can't do that. And what was version three just to help people understand what that looked like? So we're in version three now. So I'd say version, again, version one of the board was, like I say, sounding board just help advice you know give make us feel better you know version two structure responsibilities legal responsibilities signing off on things making decisions version three is much more and we're moving now that we want the board to be more client-led so we want client perspective on the board that's our next kind of evolution we're thinking about and um 
if I could have that from day one, that would be great. But you, but you, you can't. You've got to, you've got to build it. I think that's the message to anyone: is that a, creating a good board takes a lot of time, and it's not overnight. It's an investment. It's also you're not you're doing it every three four months. So it's slow. So I'd like to have version three. Not the version one was bad. It was great, uh, but it's obviously it's bigger, more robust. It's it's very routine. It's very structured. Our reporting is great. Yeah, you know, we, we used to we used to take days to produce these uh, board papers. Now they're they're, they're created automatically almost. Yeah. The systems are in place that we don't need to talk about. We talk about purely about financial performance and strategy and direction and 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 some decisions. We do. So it's I probably want the board that's not yet been created. Maybe one in two three years is one is what I want. But it's a it's a tricky question because in reality you you, you can't pick and choose. You you have to build it, and that's the that's the it feels great we're in our third, fourth year of it. So, yeah, I'd like to have that first, that third one, but you can't. So, so that then tees me up quite nicely for the second question, which is, like I said, yeah, I've had a number of people on the podcast and others talk about this, you know, and credit creating a board with their, you know, with a large part of their success. And you mentioned around in the early days, it was friends, it was people in your network. I'd love to get sort of take it as advice now or how it worked then. Yeah, how did you convince those? people and the reason i ask this is i'm in this world you know i'd love to create that anyone listening you know i'm looking for board directors <laughs> i know a lot of people in my network who are senior you know have done this before and actually you then run up against the challenge of they don't need money or yeah. you know, not the level i can spend and they're very busy so how for anyone listening who's like jeff that's a great idea or for me yeah actually how did you go about getting those people on board to commit their time because it's the time that's most expensive for them yeah so i think it's First of all, people don't get asked to join boards very often. So I think you'd be surprised. Most people would be flattered and would love to have you. I think on one of the other podcasts, I think Hartman Bridge one, one of your guests talked about how when you start the business, you'd be surprised how much help you've got in your network, but it's short lived. I can't remember who said that, but it's very true. And you can ride that for a while to build your client network and get your first projects. I think the same with board members. If, I, I, I'm pretty sure you've got a fantastic network from your podcast and you've met clients and you've got a network outside of that as well. You'd be surprised. I think most are flattered. Most are honored to be asked. And uh, that's that's half the battle again. Then yes, time commitments. It's not that much. You're not creating a executive above you. You're creating a, a board that meets to review and give you feedback and give you some guidance. And that doesn't need to be every month. It, it, it can be every quarter or two, three times a year. So in reality, the time requirement is not that bad. Um, if that person needs compensation and reward, maybe they're not the right person to help you in the, in the early days because you want that person to be doing it because they vocationally want to help you and you want you respect and, and want their advice. You don't want someone who says, yeah, I'll do it, but you need to pay me. It, I, I think that comes later. You know, as we get bigger, yeah, maybe we will interview non-execs and you want, and, you, and also if you're audited, you cross certain boundaries or you're listed, they need to be truly independent. They can't be your friend from uni or your ex-colleague. So, so in the early days, I'd say you want people that are prepared to do that and, and don't need rewarding. And, uh, You'd be very honest with them and say, I want your feedback, I want your guidance, I respect your experience, I, I really need it. Do you, are, you, are you interested? And I, I think most will say yes. So actually, 
be careful how many you ask because you might have a large board. But, <laughs> but I would, I would be, yeah, and, and be very selective and say, like, I'd love to do this. And would you be interested? And then think about what kind of board you really want it to be. So back to my, my point about when we started the company, it was, if we're going to do this, we're going to do multi-office. Same for board. If you're going to do a board, don't just make it an advisory panel. Make them directors. Make them truly part of your governance. And then then they will sit up. You know, Don't just create a panel where they, they come in and, and you show them some slides and they just pat you on the back. Because that's just a, a mirror. What you want is a board that actually holds you accountable and has teeth and they have accountability and they need insurance to cover their director positions, that kind of thing. So you make them directors. Make them legally accountable. How do you, uh, and, and maybe again, this is just one of those things that if people are up for it, they'll they'll go with you to an extent, but channeling my inner skeptic and probably some of my listeners, yeah, it's one thing asking a, a friendly, for me, podcast guest, do you want to come down to Bath four times a year? It's a nice place. You know, we'll take you for dinner. That's easy. But it's it's another thing saying you'll, you'll become a director, you've yep. got to get insurance. And I guess, yep. how did you broach that? And, and you mentioned not paying them, but am I, you, you also mentioned earlier about the sort of equity yep. side. So is that... Actually, you're not paying them. But you're saying, right, you do this, you take some responsibility, but you get a, a percent or yeah, however much yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I guess you probably sensed it a bit about, I was very clear from day one. It's like, you will be a legal director. Are you okay with that? And I said, no, no, no. But then you're not, you're not ready to be a non-exec. You know, it, so I want you to share the accountability with me. Now, it's obviously, it's, you know, proportionate, but you make it very clear. There's no, there's no ambiguity. It's like, I'm creating a board with teeth and I want you to be a director alongside me as a non-exec, but in the eyes of the law, you're a director. We, the company will provide the insurance, which you have to do anyway. So you should do that anyway. And we'll have liability insurance, one of those sort of things you should have. So you're, you're covered by that, but you will be a legal director. And eventually you'll be signing off on things and you're running the company. You're, you're, no, you're not doing it day to day. The exec is there to run the business. So in your world, it might be you and another director maybe running the business. But then, yes, every quarter, you're going to sit in a room and they're going to look at the financial accounts and they will be on company's house as a director. And I think it's, for me, if you're going to do it, do it. You know, and I think it's, and then when we did it the first time, it, it all felt very overkill. For what on earth are we doing? We're creating this board with people and, you know, they're all directors. It's like, what are we, we've just tripled the number of directors in the business. But oh, no, 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 over time, it, it, it really kicks in. And they're comfortable. They they want to do it. They relish in it. They're enjoying it. And then when we go to replace a board member, for example, it's it's that yep, you are you okay with that? And some people aren't. It's okay. Then it's not for you. Else, what you're doing is you're just creating an advisory panel, which becomes a mirror. So I, I it's okay. But if that's what you want, then fine. But I think you should go the full the full distance. Um, in my experience, yeah. Fantastic, Jeff. Well, I, I'm very mindful that we have a dinner booking very shortly. And I know we talked earlier about would we, you know, we, we'd try and cover the topic at the moment. I'll be honest, I think we might have to miss COVID, sadly. I also, <laughs> it's something, because this podcast series, I like the idea that it lives on for years. You know, some of the, yeah. the interviews live on. Well, the first one was over two and a half years ago. I kind of, That's I'm not amazing. so upset about That's that. Amazing. Hopefully you're, you're not either. But um, I want to bring us to, almost to the final questions. And obviously as a, an, an avid listener, you'll you'll know what's coming. So I'm I'm really looking forward to your answers. <laughs> so the first one is books. I'm going to give the short version because I always say it too long. What is the book or books that you find yourself recommending to people most, and why? So I do I do like to give books. I think 
whether that person wants to read it or not is very, uh, very erratic. But yeah, I do think it, I've, I've always enjoyed receiving books. It's always nice that someone's read it and then they've valued it and they think you will. So I, I do, I do do that. The one I really, it's very apt for what we're doing and the experience of people coming into our business or people we meet is, is Shoe Dog. Amazing book. And I read that, what, I don't know, two years ago now? It's two, three years old, I can't remember. But um, tell you what, that book will teach you everything you need to know about running, building a business. And I think people who read that book go, wow, is that, that how, how close to bankruptcy they, he was for, for many, many years, even when they were quite big. The, the sheer audacity of it, the entrepreneurial spirit, the, and, when it, when it, and also so, yeah, it teaches you that you don't need to have a grand plan you just need to want to do something. And I, I think the, when he first, I won't tell the story of the book, but when he, when, he, when he started, it was so far away from what it became. And the journey there was truly just go get it and go for it. And, and the sheer sacrifice and hard work. And it's also a great book. It's a great story. We have great, it, it will be a great movie. And I think, um, so that one I, I, I recommend a lot. I've just bought another copy for our uh, marketing solutions lead. Um, very apt because he's in marketing and he hadn't read it. I was like, have you not read this story about Nike? And he's like, so he's, I, I, will he enjoy it? I, I hope so. So that one, a lot. And uh, I do, again, the Richard Branson books. I don't think they're as good as uh, Shoe Dog, but I think they, again, they show the effort and sacrifice that is needed if you're serious about this. And I think it shows, again, audacity and, and also luck and good fortune and, some things go your way, some things don't. And they, they both show that. And then the uh, the other one, more of a, uh, I guess it's not an academic, but more methodology is, um, uh, I think it's called Get Real or Get Real or Get Lost or something. Or get, I'll, I'll send you the name, but it's, um, it's actually a training course done by Franklin Covey mm-hmm. about sales. Get Real or Go Home or something like that it's called. But um, it's all about becoming a, an advisor and, and not selling a solution and, and listening to clients. And, and it's a fantastic, it's one of the best training courses I went on uh, with Accenture. And, you know, and I know you've talked about sales and consulting being a bit of a dirty word. It is. And that book really shows you that actually it's just about relationships and talking to people and, and listening and not going in with a solution and, and listening to the, the person, not the client. And it's, it, it gives great examples of, um, you know, you're talking to us. If you meet someone in a pub or a social party, you don't you don't pitch yourself to them, do you? You go, oh, "Hi, Nick. What do you do?" And what you're listening to them. You're, you're interesting, and it's exactly the same with a client situation. That book's fantastic. So it's called "Get Real or Go Home." I like that. It's um, how to become the true you know partner advisor. It's a fantastic book. It's actually a training course, but that book is fantastic. So those those two are very good. Some fantastic recommendations there, Jeff. And I think yeah, I I listened to so I. I listened to Shoe Dog on Audible um, probably about six months ago, and I think you're spot on. I think they, for me, where I am, I think the the two big things are first, and for anyone actually, it's the like you say, bloody hell, what he went through to build Night. Yeah, the, the yes, you know, we won't spoil it for our listeners, but the the stories are amazing. And I think the other side, and this comes to I guess some of the things you've talked about on your journey, is actually. I've seen it's one of these Instagram quotes that I'll butcher, but it's, you know, you can under, people drastically overestimate what you can achieve in a year and drastically underestimate what you can achieve in a decade. That's, that's a great, great example. I think it's, it's exactly that. I think it's, it takes a long time, but you can go a long way. I think that's another way of looking at it. It, I can't believe we're, we're going into our 10th, well, we start our 10th year next year and it, it's, 
it feels like 50. But we're, we're all very proud of it. And I think, yeah, you're, you're, that's a spot on quote. I think it's, but you look, I look back to the year one and it just how is that possible? How is it possible? You pinch yourself every day and you're very fortunate. It's, it's all teamwork and the team have done a lot of that work. It's the same with other, other businesses, but um, we've still got a long way to go. But, you, but actually, it gets faster you know, as you get bigger. So it, it becomes a little bit easier. Some things get harder, but I agree with that. That's a, that's a great quote. And then very last question, and then we will close down. <laughs> and we've, we've got a lovely restaurant booked in Bath. I can't wait. So this, again, will not be a surprise to you, so I'll keep it brief. You've got three people in front of you. One is an analyst. I think you mentioned either just before you started recording or, or on, you're, you're taking some graduates on in Bristol. So it's one of those. The second is a manager. Yeah, use Accenture parlance there for manager. And the third is is you, you know, someone approaching director, wanting to either start a business or go, you know, follow the partnership. And as you know, the, the question is, what one piece of advice would you give to each? I think for the, so yeah, we, we've just taken on two graduates and a, a placement student literally this week in the UK, which is, is, is um, it's so, so nice to, to bring in people at the start of their careers. It's, it's amazing. So I think the advice is, First of all, consulting is a great environment to build your career, to start your career in. I think, so if they're coming into consulting and they're just first year or two, just, I think you've seen, you've heard this advice from a few people is just enjoy it. Just soak it up, get on the train and there'll be good projects and there'll be phenomenal projects. There'll be amazing highs. There'll be some lows and that's consulting. And don't get distracted by the low. You might be lucky and get a really amazing, exciting project for the first one. Or you might get stuck in some you know, unglamorous location with not such a glamorous role, but that you're still learning. So don't be precious. You're just starting. Enjoy the variety that consulting gives you. And it's not measured in months, it's measured in years. So you've got to go through the highs and lows to really appreciate, I think, a consulting career. And I've had some phenomenal highs in my early years. Go, go lives that you're very lucky to be in that environment with a client. You're very, very fortunate to be in that room all that. So I think enjoy that. And then as you get to the next level, start making decisions. So I think if you're at the manager grade, is this a career for you longer term? Because families, life's changing. You might be getting married. You, you may be wanting to move countries. Yeah, whatever's happening, you, things are getting complicated. You've probably got a house, maybe. You've got commitments. Is this what you want? Are you enjoying it still? Are you relishing in the, in the highs and lows? Ask yourself that question. If you are, then start to think about what, what you want to be doing, you know, what capabilities you want to be leading or building or, or technology or area, and um, put a plan together. You know, just think about, is this the right consulting company for me? Do I want to stay in Accenture, Deloitte, wherever it is? Or do I want to have a different environment but stay in consulting? That's a decision point. I think it's a really big one. And then for the new-ish partner in that zone, yeah, be very, very sure what you're about to do. Are you really, really sure you want to do this? And I've got friends and colleagues who've in that environment who've approached us and then they're not. It's a massive step. And I think you're walking. Also, do you really want to walk away from that career? You've got, you've, you've worked so hard. You've got to a certain point. You've, you've done it. You've, you've, you've got a fantastic history CV. You've got great potential ahead of you now in the leadership of a consultant company. Do you really want to walk away on that? Ask yourself that really hard question and be ready for what is it you want to do and be ready for the sacrifice. And then if that's the case, then go for it. But yeah. Fantastic. Well, Jeff, I think that is a great place for us to finish tonight. So firstly, thank you for 
making the trip out from Germany to here. And thank you for taking the time for this. Um, I really enjoy it. It's been great to catch no, up. No, um, I'm looking forward to the, the second round when we go for dinner. <laughs> yes. um, but the last question then, um, and less of a question, more just for anyone who has listened, wants to find out more about yourself, wants to find out more about Lancia Consult, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? So uh, you can email me, jeff at lanceaconsult.com. That's no problem. And uh, LinkedIn. So we, if you want to see what the company's doing on the team, you know, follow the company on LinkedIn, look at uh, what the team are posting and look at that. that by all means, that's one great place to look at it. The website, we don't put you know, news on there really. We're, we're going, again, evolutions of things. Website's another one. It's constant pressure. Um, but yeah, those, those places. And uh, yeah, but contact us approach on LinkedIn, no problem at all. Yeah, we're always, uh, and as I said, we're growing, we're looking, we're always looking for people and, and you know, there's anything like that, no problem at all. Fantastic, Jeff. Well, I will put all of those links in the show notes, put links to the books and that has been fantastic. So thank you very much. Normally I say all the best for the rest of your week, but I'd say let's leave it there and we can go grab dinner. Great, thanks. Fantastic, cheers, Jeff. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.